I'm Bob Ward from the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at London School of Economics and Political Science, and this is uh, a session now on uh, public understanding of risk and uncertainty. And we're going to start with a talk from Professor Nick Pidgeon, who is a Professor of Environmental Psychology at Cardiff University. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Bob. And, well, thank you very much for the, um, the invitation to come and talk. Yeah, I'll... Um, I'll try to make sure I'm as brief as possible. I've got quite a few slides to, to go through. Some, some of the points I'll make, actually, David has, has made already. Um, I suppose one of the reasons I'm here is, is um, for the past three years, I've held an ESRC fellowship, professorial fellowship to look at changing attitudes towards climate change amongst the UK public and internationally over the last... Um, uh, uh, the last few years. And that's actually proven quite, I, I won't say a lot about that, maybe in questions we can get into that. Um, but that, tr trying actually to establish that, the uh, data for that, uh, to answer that question, has been um, an intriguing methodological um, issue. So, um, uh, just to make the point that um, Actually, risk has come up the agenda. Um, if you went back three or four years ago, no, no, nobody rang me. I mean, this is, well, not nobody, but um, <laughs> very few journalists would ring up. And then suddenly, the ass cloud occurred. Um, there was some flooding, obviously. We, um, we've had the um, renewable energy has gone up uh, the agenda. Fukushima occurred. And actually now, um, there's another joke in here, as I said to David, from ash to ash, that the, the ash tree issue has suddenly become huge and the risks of plant biosecurity have raised all sorts of issues uh, at the policy level, which some of you will know is, is currently on, ongoing. So, um, and, and then the, in a sense, the, the phone has not stopped ringing, which is very interesting. Why suddenly have, and particularly uh, journalists and media, become interested in risk? Um, uh, and, and some of these issues. Um, uh, the, well, many of the things that underlie why these issues become media issues um, are, are not um, new, I might add, and have been well studied over the years, and I'll say a bit about that as we go along. So um, really to reiterate what David said, um, if you go back to the Royal Society in 1992, um, that, that I was involved in that, that, that report, um, and it made the point that actually there was no one simple definition of risk. And the Royal Society at the time didn't like that, and Richard Dole in particular didn't like that conclusion, which is why they um, initially downgraded the report, um, but it turned to be a, a bestseller for them, um, and actually um, uh, those of us who were involved in that, that part of that report were sort of rehabilitated two or three years afterwards because they realised actually we were saying fairly sensible things, that if you looked into the literature there are all sorts of definitions. It can be likelihood of harm, consequence time, times likelihood is the most um, used one. And then if you looked at the regulatory level, actually risk is used in very different ways across the different regulatory sectors. If you look at aviation, health, um, radiation protection, let's say, um, building codes different again. So there, there's this whole tapestry of what, what risk is out there that's, that's partly um, driven by different levels of ex expertise and um, different histories in the different sectors. So that doesn't help communication either. Um, again, this is, David's talked about this, but Andy Sterling has, has sort of, um, a, in a sense, popularised this diagram. Um, the thinking is a little, um, well, goes, goes, goes way back, actually, in, into the philosophy of uncertainty and risk, but Andy makes the point that depending on how much information you've got, 
or, or your, 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 um, your, your certainty about certain parameters, then, then you move away from a risk-based approach. So when we know our outcomes are uh, fairly well and we know the likelihoods fairly well, we are in the domain of risk and risk assessment um, and cost-benefit analysis fit. And it's always the danger actually in policy that policymakers like to shoehorn everything into that um, that uh, top uh, left-hand corner of, of the graph. Um, but risk assessment isn't always appropriate when you've got um, less knowledge about... Um, and much of the issue about risk communication, I think, that we've been talking about over the, over the years as, is associated with some of these issues. So when you, you don't have knowledge about likelihoods or it's problematic, um, the experts might not agree, um, then you've got what's called uncertainty if you've got... Um, uh, issues with um, the actual outcomes, you don't know what the outcome is likely to be, or there's a range of potential outcomes, then you've got ambiguity. Um, actually, there's, a, there's a, a nuance there. Unfortunately, economists call what is on here as uncertainty ambiguity, but we'll not go there. So um, uh, that's just a disciplinary thing. Um, and then something that David Collinge many, many years ago talked about decision-making under ignorance is where both are problematic. That doesn't mean you can't do things, and it doesn't mean there aren't uh, responses that, that are possible. So as, and again, as the graph shows, or as the diagram shows, within the box, response strategies change depending upon where you feel you are there. And, and that's the first thing that in the whole debate about climate change and communicating about climate change, I'll come on to this, that the whole motif of uncertainty has become a political struggle. So um, uh, people who, who hold the view that, that the science, um, uh, that, that, that there's a sense in which the science is not showing the climate is changing, um, typically um, described as climate skeptics, tend to um, focus upon the uncertainty, uh, uncertainty and, uh, and um, to, to state that uncertainty in a sense is a acute and not doing anything but actually there are various sorts of things you can do under uncertainty it's not that the uncertainty has no potential um uh potential responses so one could attempt to do uncertainty assessment a bit like the how confident are we or how uncertain are we um you can do if, if your decision options could build flexibility in so that if you if it turns out that that you are on the 20 percent and you're wrong then you can change at a later stage so that's kind of a resilience um, uh, idea. Um, and then uh, the, the argument that was made by Funtovitz and Rabbits many years ago on kind of post-normal risk assessment was that you widen stakeholder participation to open up the framing. So if you, um, you make, it's a search for a better um, frame, of, frame of reference. And often, if you look at major disasters, which I did many years ago, um, it's rare that something um, goes badly wrong um, and somebody didn't have some appropriate information somewhere out there. It's just that it was not assembled in an appropriate way. Um, it doesn't guarantee that you can reduce uncertainty, but it does help um, with, with uh, dealing with the problem at a management level. Um, so I was asked to talk about risk perception, and I'll go through this quite briefly. So a lot of this stuff has been written up elsewhere. Um, but, but the basic thing that was identified, I guess, in the 70s, work on nuclear power in particular, was that the engineers had a view of risk and the public had a rather, or the publics, which were out there, and the multiple ones, had, had other things driving um, what they believed risk was, and that led to a complete miscommunication if you were just attempting to um, talk in engineering speak. 
So risk has qualitative characteristics. There are cultural or political factors involved, things called social amplification. It's not just the media as well. I think media is part of that process, but it's not the only um, uh, 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 driver of social amplification. Um, uh, trust in risk managers are absolutely critical in this. Um, so if we distrust um, the managers of risk or the, pe the people who are supposed to be regulating it for whatever reason, um, and BSE, GM, GMOs are one of those examples, I think, where distrust got into the system, um, then um, we are much less likely to um, actually um, take on board the message. And perceived benefits also matter. I think that's, that's worth bearing in mind, that that's important. The qualitative risk factors, the classic one is involuntariness, but there are a number of them that if, if all other things being equal, if we take on a risk, uh, or if a risk is voluntarily taken on, then we, then, then we perceive the, it to be lower than if it's imposed on us by some outside agency. Um, and lots of examples of that I don't want to go into in, in great detail. In climate change is interesting. Um, what, what it leads to actually is the, the conclusion that you have to look at each, um, uh, each issue and look at its particular profile um, uh, uh, in isolation. Although there are these general principles, well, and that's what, what research in public risk perception is often about, is to try and work out what's unique about a particular, whether it's nanotechnology, is that different from GM, is that different from nuclear, um, how will gas, gas fracking look when that um, you know, potentially starts in, in the backwoods in Oxfordshire, what, what, what will the local people think of that? So one's attempting to use the general principles, but each issue tends to be different, it ha will have a different signature. So climate change has been well studied, uh, both here and in the US and in Europe primarily, um, less so internationally, I think, we have less um, uh, data on how people in uh, many other countries, particularly developing countries, view climate change. There's some data, but it, there's less of it. Um, but thinking about US and UK in particular work, um, increasing concern, and actually ebbs and flows. What's happened, there's been a very interesting little um, episode, which was not just due to the cli climate change email um, saga in 2009, um, but that um, concern went up until about 2006-07, then started to decrease in both countries and in some European countries as well. Um, at, went flat after about 2010 and then it actually has just started to rise again, which is interesting. And there are multiple factors underlying that, which I won't go into. Um, for many years, some people have thought the science is contested. Um, there's some confusion with other environmental issues, but the evidence shows that that, and, and that was because in the 60s, climate change and ozone both arose at about the same time, so the two narratives got um, mixed up in policy discourse as well. Um, but that is now receding. The evidence shows us that that's no longer as strong a, a misconstrual. Mis, mis, um, um, but what, what is true is many people view it as a distant problem affecting other people in time, something we've called a there's a psychological distance attached to climate change. And that is a real issue for motivating people to act. That if, if you don't feel, and this is where we can look, actually, there are lots of readovers from health research into climate change research. It's interesting David raised that, that question um, and risk communication around health. And, and climate research could learn a lot from the health domain because it's been well trodden. Um, one of the things that is important in the health domain is the risk has to be relevant to you um, uh, and have some personal re relevance to you or your, your family. And, and that's, and you have to feel personally vulnerable in order to um, change your behavior. 
Um, now, with climate change, that is an issue because is it personally relevant to think about um, uh, potential deaths in, 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 let's say, the Sahara or in Africa in 20 years' time, 40 years' time, as a result of drought? Um, an interesting question. And that's one of the things some of us are working on is the question of actually thinking about climate attribution and, um, and local impacts of climate change. We recognise the effects, in the, um, but don't necessarily connect them with the causes. And actually, in, I, we did an in, well, one of my PhD students, Stuart Capsit, very interesting PhD, looked at the, the change in beliefs, looking at qualitative data. There are a number of qualitative data sets over the last 15 years we were able to access of members of the UK public talking about climate change. And actually, their meta-beliefs are quite stable over time. There have been some differences. The ozone thing has decreased. There's slightly more sceptical um, uh, nuances in the, in the past four or five years. But the meta-beliefs about quite, climate change have been quite stable over time. Um, interesting values matter. We know that in the US. And it's sort of here, but at, in, at a milder level. Some work we did um, in 2010, survey work. Um, uh, and I guess it's the thing down the bottom that's interesting, that people who, sh who, who um, Ex express more scepticism about climate change in a general public um, uh, sample. This is not people who are, who are activists on that side, because um, as soon as one talks about stakeholders, people who are actively engaged, I think different things come, come into the mix there. Um, but in terms of the general public, slightly weaker environmental and sort of self-transcendent values, which are, which are values which are associated, as Tom Crompton at WWF has said, and others about um, concern for other, other people, and stronger traditional values. So, so there's a value component. It often looks like a voter preference. In the US, you can predict somebody's views on climate change by asking them who they vote for, um, but actually underlying it, as some of the US work shows, that it's much more about the value positions people are taking up in relation to life and beliefs. And um, again, you have a slightly milder version here in the, in the UK. So uh, we've got media amplification is important. Um, we, we, we know that a, a combination of issues will, it will, uh, will uh, um, then um, prompt the media to focus on a risk question. Um, what we know is you need more than one of these factors. Um, and that often each issue is slightly different. So it will be a different combination. Uh, um, it, ash, um, the ash cloud was would have been slightly different from Fukushima, would have been slightly different from, let's say, the, the BSE um, saga. Um, but, but, and so that makes it quite difficult to predict. But you know as soon as you see an issue that's got several of these, there's a possibility the media will um, uh, focus strongly on it. Um, uh, and again, Fukushima is a, is a good example of that. Um, um, interestingly, I mean, we've had a lot of discussion about why the, the media focused upon um, the, the climate change emails a few years ago, because um, media, um, media attention can, this is an att the media is attempting here actually to downgrade the risk. It's not the media is saying suddenly there's a huge, huge disaster about, the hap about to happen. It's, the, the narrative is also in, is, is in the opposite direction, which is rather interesting. Um, uh, but um, again, one can speculate why that occurred. Um, I, th I think that there's a sense in which um, there was a challenge to um, the trustworthiness of scientists. Um, and, and 
and it occurred at a time when, in a sense, after IPCC, the fourth report in 2006, and the Stern report, it was almost as if, certainly in, in much UK um, policy and, and media discussion, the issue had been sorted out, and there, there was sort of a consensus on climate change. I know Mike Hume talks about that as a, a little bit of a misnomer. But at the science level, there were several key things that, in which scientists had high conf relatively high confidence, um, and, and therefore we should move the debate on. So the emails kind of came at a point where that really disrupted that, that narrative. And I think some of the science journalists might want to say something about how they were kind of the discussions they had with um, some of their um, um, editors above them as a result of that. I think that shows that. Um, in climate risk communication, it's interesting. Um, do, do we have we, are we at a critical moment? Um, partly um, because I think the scientists would say um, the issue of climate change is much more pressing, uh, as pressing as it's always been and getting more pressing. Um, and yet we have this sort of destabilization of the narrative um, around, um, uh, around uh, um, a public understanding. Um, and it's interesting because for, for about 15 years in the UK, we've, we've had this view that we moved from, and there was some discussion, Alice, Alice Bell last week at a meeting in London made this point, that we've moved from a, let's just tell people the facts and they will, um, everybody will suddenly um, believe the science message, to a much more public consultation, two-way dialogue process. This, this point from the UK House of Lords Science Technology Committee. Um, but the, the question then is um, that that leads to a much more micro interaction with people. I think that's what's happened. So we've had lots of citizen juries, panels, etc., around various new technology issues. Engagement with NGOs has been said um, and others over, over GM. So a different way of doing things but is that fit for purpose for the climate problem? And now I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but we, we might ask that question uh, today. Um, so we are, are we at a critical moment in, 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 in re rethinking the, um, uh, the received wisdom we've been sitting with in the public understanding of science community for the past 15 years? Um, interesting question. Um, Here's an example of, of not really thinking about your audience, not doing what the House of Lords said, understanding the public. Here, here's from IPCC4. Um, these are their um, linguistic quantifiers, which they defined as, and just look at very unlikely, that's less than 10%. And what happened? Well, um, some psychologists pointed out that we've been studying um, public understanding of linguistic quantifiers for years and years, um, and that um, therefore very unlikely these are public judgments of what very unlikely means. And I think the median was greater than 33%. Um, and this is the interquartile range. So you see there's a huge range of the way people are interpreting what very unlikely means. So if you just use that phrase, believing it will communicate 10%, less than 10%, you're wrong. And, um, and that's a good example of needing to connect this, the statements you're using with communication, for communication, with... Um, the way people are actually interpreting the issue. Um, on uncertainty, um, there is uncertainty in climate science, that's true, but that tends to be the, the business of science question, the business of science. In terms of the core kind of uh, issues around climate change, maybe the discussion about uncertainty has, um, uh, in a sense, um, uh, knocked aside this question of confidence. What are we confident in? 
Um, and we're confident in terms of the physical model, we're confident in terms of um, rising uh, greenhouse gas emissions and the measurements of that, we're confident in terms of a range of things. And I think that the discussion of uncertainty has, uh, has, has, has detracted from that message, I'm sure. Um, uh, so one of the arguments that I've made with one of my colleagues, Brooke Fischoff, and there's a paper available which I've got a few copies um, a, from Nature Climate Change last year, is we, we, we ought to just re-pitch this back to risk and say, look, let's try and frame this as a risk problem, which will involve uncertainty under certain circumstances, um, but then appropriate responses to uncertainty, as I discussed. Um, but let's, let's frame it as something that um, uh, there's a chance of something happening in the future, it may be bad, um, um, and we may be wrong as well, but at least we can then discuss those options and, and it focuses us then upon the fact that, they're, that we have a decision problem and that either we decide not to make a choice at this point or we decide to take certain um, actions. Um, so, um, in a sense, the UK SIP climate projections for all their, you know, they've got some um, difficulties associated with them, um, uh, are an attempt to do that for the very first time and to downscale to a local scale. Uh, note, unfortunately, that, that very unlikely appears again in small print there, but uh, although they've defined it, but even in the Budescu study they defined it and still people didn't understand or fully what very, or didn't interpret very unlikely in the way that was meant by the scientists. So there are still one or two issues associated with that. Um, so in the battle to, um, one minute, okay, um, reframe risk and uncertainty, st scientists struggle to communicate um, while skeptics seeks to emphasize uncertainty. So the argument is we need to reframe it explicitly around risk and uncertainty. They've done that with the Thames flood barrier. Um, the decision was actually to wait and watch and then, then a little later on. So this is kind of remaining flexible over time. And really just to say, and, and I will sum up, um, in, in the paper we've, we've argued that um, the institutional response should be uh, a stance of strategic listening. So we need to listen to the, the audience from a science perspective and a policy perspective very closely and go out and actually find out people's um, uh, uh, current uh, position with respect to climate change and then uh, that, that helps us to uh, actually communicate much better and that's just basic work from risk communication I don't think there's anything um, complicated about that but I suppose um, the thing that's slightly more um, in a sense that's more difficult is when we were doing this this work and reflecting upon climate risk communication, we, we, we came to the conclusion that the, the capacity wasn't there. That the really to meet this agenda, to, to, to marry climate science with the risk communication work that, that David's been talking about, and to a decision-making frame, and, and in a way that helps policy, and anybody who has got a decision around climate change to make, be that um, uh, the Thames barrier or protecting their own home from flooding, let's say. Um, th there is no strategic capacity to do it. So we felt um, that, 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 and this is a, in a sense a, um, a wish list rather than something that will necessarily materialise, but it's interesting to think how, how uh, climate science and the, the risk community 
could um, actually um, collaborate on, on attempting to do this, um, that you would need cross-disciplinary teams, they'd have to have short and long-term science policy project, projects. Um, interestingly, a stance of non-persuasive persuasive communication, which I can I'm talk about under questions, and, uh, and embedded in what's called a boundary organisation, which would have a basic science, but also policy objective, and, and a range of expertise required. Um, appropriately resourced, okay. So, um, in, a, in a sense, that's all I wanted to say. I'll, I will stop now, and that's about my slightly more than 20 minutes. Um, okay, but, um, thank you very much, Nick. Um, we're going to move, yeah, please give me a